my experience of team sports, apart from the basketball one of traveling for two hours to matches and then not getting to play, was also camogie. And I was never a big fan and I had a tendency to kind of complain a bit and I swung the, the, the come on around a bit and I broke someone's nose and that was the end of my camogie career. So, you know, this is, adventure sports can be, can be a lot safer. <laughs> this week's episode of Girls With Goals is brought to you by Sport Ireland. For the next few weeks, we're celebrating some of Ireland's most influential women in sport and getting the message out there about participation, leadership and visibility. Hello and welcome to Girls With Goals. For the next few weeks, we've teamed up with Sport Ireland. We're going to be profiling some incredible women and getting the message out there about participation, about leadership, visibility as well, all the good stuff. So the last couple of weeks, we've actually had Nora Stapleton and Lynn Cantwell on as well. So some incredible episodes to go back and listen if you haven't already caught up with the series. It's well worth it. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce my guest, Dr. Una May, Director of Participation participation and ethics in Sport Ireland. Una has a PhD in exercise physiology as well as a bachelor's in sports science. She also represented Ireland in both orienteering and mountain running. So Una, we're absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome and thanks for the invitation. It's funny to think back that far, but yeah. <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, I, I suppose the first thing I want to talk to you about is is your own experience in sport. So, you know, on this show, we've had a lot of conversations and, and chats with athletes, but it is rare that we have someone that has such an esteemed academic background as well. So can you tell us a little bit about your own entry into sport and, and how that began for you? Yeah, Um I suppose it it wasn't too particularly high profile or anything like that. I was just like a lot of the the girls that uh, that are out there now. I uh, I I did whatever I could in school. I always loved sport. I was brought up in a kind of a rural environment, so I spent a lot of my time outdoors. Um, not necessarily organized sport, but being active. Um, I had siblings who were into sport, which probably helped. But again not necessarily organized sport, but more kind of informal, but and mostly individual sports. Um, but we also, by living in a rural area, and my parents were not necessarily particularly sporty, not in, when I was younger anyway, they did kind of demonstrate more of a sporty background as I grew up, but they were more into kind of culture and arts. And back in my day, uh, we didn't have a Gael school in every neighborhood. So we traveled a long, long way to get to school in, in Irish schools but it meant that after school activities were really difficult so it wasn't really until secondary school that I got a bit more involved in activities and and actually it was through school that I was introduced to orienteering which was my first main sport um, the mountain running kind of came as a result of just I suppose training for orienteering um, and yeah like orienteering I say it started in in second secondary school in first year and very quickly like the first day I did it I went out and I begged the school if the bus well the bus was not going anywhere because some people were out for a very long time but I was finished my course and some people were only barely halfway around so I went around and did a second course so I just loved it literally from from the first time I tried it and uh, it just grew from there so um, that was my my orienteering background and I also lived in the foothills of the Dolan Mountains so every run I did was uphill so um, mountain running was an obvious kind of sidebar for me it, it kept me fit for orienteering but it was it was something I loved doing as well um so when I came to deciding what I was going to do in the future um 
to me, the obvious choices, and as I said, a slightly different era, <laughs> but the only choices in sport were physiotherapy or teaching. And uh, I really did not have an interest in teaching. Um, I didn't love my school experiences of PE, and it certainly didn't endear me to the idea of being a PE teacher. And then I discovered this idea of sports science, which was, wasn't available in Ireland at the time. And I went to study in Liverpool and I suppose the rest is history. I loved it. I, it was fantastic. I had a, had a great mentor who was actually an Irishman from Mayo who supported and encouraged me throughout my, my academic career. He asked me to come back to do a PhD, which was fantastic. He was interested in a lot of the work I was doing, which was about, you know, this sort of off-road running, the, the biomechanics, the, the physiology, all those sort of aspects of off-road running. So it completely linked my passion for orienteering and mountain running into my academic background. So yeah, that was my kind of basic history. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about um, kind of having that mentor and how that developed into almost, you know, delving deeper into the world of sport because of that. Because I feel like when we're talking about participation in sport, and in particular with this series, when we're talking about participation for young girls in sport as well, it is about finding those pathways and, and making sure that there's clear pathways available. So I, I suppose, you know, kind of speaking about that and having that amount of experience uh, in keeping with the messaging that Sport Ireland is trying to get out there, what do you feel like, you know, from your own experience are some of the challenges that are faced, um, you know, when it comes to young girls today in today's society and, and kind of getting into sport in the first place? Yeah, I mean, look, funny enough, some of the challenges are the exact same as they were back then. And, you know, whilst I, you know, I suppose I, I took to orienteering as my main sport and mountain running, they're both very much individual sports. I did enjoy team sports, but I didn't have particularly good experiences um, because, as I mentioned, I lived up in the mountains. <laughs> Travelling to anything was an epic adventure. So I could take two hours. I was on the basketball team and I could spend two hours getting to a match and not play. And that's, you know, pretty soul destroying. And if I hadn't had the other sports that I love doing so much, I think I could have been turned off sport very easily. Um, my, my, I have three sisters and two, the two older ones were big into horse riding and it didn't really do it for me. My brother was into adventure sports and I was much more interested in them. So you're influenced by, by those around you and the opportunities you get. And as I said, because I was in a rural environment, there's the, the, the I suppose, the barriers that girls still have um, and not just girls but I suppose we're talking about girls today but the barrier living in a rural environment of being able to access possibilities and opportunities to take part in a variety of different sports is often kind of a bit more limited and that's one of the sort of barriers that we identified in our research is the idea um, of girls feeling that that I suppose labeling themselves as not sporty on the basis of early experiences they've had which maybe have been quite limited and focused only in particular sports. Um, traditionally in schools, we tend to be more exposed to team sports. And if, if a girl doesn't have the, the, the sort of affinity for a team sport, it can often be put off-putting. And they then label themselves as not sporty going forward. And that's a really big challenge for us. I think it's one of the big you know, difficulties. But yeah, look, there, there are multiple other challenges for girls, you know, where they have to deal with the, the world in which they live, which is a slightly different world to the one we lived in with the whole influence of digital um, environment and that sort of thing, which can be it can be a positive as well as a negative. But it's it's a distraction. There's no question about that. Um, the, the whole issues of independence, you know, teenagers are at a stage in their lives when there is so much change going on in their lives um, and they're kind of 
I suppose their 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 drive to be more independent is really important to them, and we can give them that through sport if if we focus on it and we if we identify. I suppose by identifying the things that are important to girls, we want to try and reach out to girls, identifying those challenges and identifying those things that are important for them. What we've referred to in our research as the anchors, we can we can connect those anchors and we can provide opportunities that connect girls and, and acknowledge and recognize those things that are important for them, th- things like their moments of pride. And pride doesn't have to be in just winning. It, it can be achieving something. It might be getting up at four in the morning to do a darkness into light walk or something like that. So those moments of pride are really important for teenagers. And I think we have to keep on top of that and recognize that there's a lot of pressures on them. I mean, even more so now, but, you know, throughout all of our lives, we've all had to deal with the whole exam pressure, the growing up pressures, the the the, the hormones and all the changes that are going on for, for teenagers. And, and as I said, it's not just for girls, but it's it's particularly an issue for girls because they, they have these kind of concerns around confidence. Girls tend not to be as confident as boys. And, you know, we have to provide them with opportunities to develop that confidence and for them to, to, to have confidence through latching onto those anchors so giving them that connection through their friends so even if they don't want to participate in a team sport they still want to be doing activities with their friends so those kind of connections are really important to them um so we can use the research we've we've done to identify these really important um i suppose the principles behind what makes a girl active and what motivates them and that's what we want to work on absolutely it's so interesting when you talk about that una because when you mentioned there about um you know, being labelled as sporty. I literally flashbacks to when I was younger because in my group of girlfriends, there was like the sporty ones and then the non-sporty ones, but we never labelled ourselves with that. It was almost as if we were just being told, okay, well, you're sporty, you're sporty, you're sporty. And it actually had nothing to do with whether we were talented at a certain sport. It was almost more so to do with whether we were talented with the sport that was in the curriculum, like that was in school. So for example, like I remember we did long jump in my school and like I'm five foot one if I can tell you I am terrible at long jump not my sport I'm never going to get anywhere fast pretty much and uh, I just remember being so upset that I was bad at long jump and I I thought that that was going to kind of have this impact on you know it turned out if you put a racket into my hand I was very very good at that but I never knew because long jump was what we played in school so I just thought that I was I remember specifically thinking that I was bad at sport because I couldn't jump far but I mean it's it's so interesting because it does kind of almost get into your psyche without you realizing it and it's definitely to do with that confidence that you were talking about yeah that's it and um, I suppose we have to find ways to give girls confidence and you know we can do that by providing the right kind of opportunities because if if you said you know if you lose confidence because you're not very good with the ball then you know you won't try other activities and I suppose when, when teenagers want to try something new they're often jumping into an activity that the people who are already involved in that activity have been doing for some time and therefore they're they're always going to worry they have this tendency to worry about being made fun of or looking bad or, or just looking awkward or being clumsy or whatever just because they don't gel with that particular activity so something I think that we're going to really aim to do is develop different opportunities and make sure that we not develop because 
because they're out there. There's We Sport Ireland recognises 50, 60 NGBs in different sports. So there are lots of options out there for girls. And we have to find ways in which they can enter those opportunities in a safe way so that they don't feel that judgment that gives them that kind of, I suppose, that kick if, if they're not particularly good at whatever it is they try, that they can have fun even if they're not particularly skilled at it. So they like doing new things that maybe none of their friends have done. Um, and, you know, the idea of these kind of muck runs and things like that, where you don't train to be a good muck runner in school, you know, you, you just have a laugh. And that's the kind of thing we really need to be encouraging these girls to be involved with. And, and as I said, give them opportunities to try a new sport, but in a safe way where there isn't that same judgment involved. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's such important messaging. Um, I suppose kind of talking a little bit more about, you know, uh, mentors and people that are kind of looked up to in the world of sport. And, you know, we're really hammering home the message of leadership as well and, and how important that is, you know, when it comes to, to getting women involved in, in sport. And um, I suppose from your point of view, obviously having been involved in sport for, for a long time and, and being in such a senior position, you know, are there more from your perspective, are there more women in senior roles within sport now? And I suppose I feel like this is something that will really affect the next generation coming up. So seeing women who are in those positions of power in sport and knowing that it's not tokenism, knowing that it's actually, you know, it's their right to be there in those positions. And it will also be a great thing for young girls to just look at and know that there are also great opportunities when it comes to other aspects of sport and not just you know, playing or becoming an elite athlete, per se. Yeah, look, I think that that's really important. It is, you know, during the time I suppose I've been involved in sports, you know, when you're younger, you don't look up at those people. You don't see the leaders. They have an impact and they create an environment and they create that context, but you don't look at them. I, I, I couldn't even tell you who was the chairperson or the president or whatever of the, the Orienteering Association when I was an athlete. But I do know that in future years, I, I would be able to tell you. Um, yeah. And so I suppose, you know, those sort of things become more relevant. But it's not so much about, you know, as a teenager looking at these positions, but as you go through sport and the influence that having a greater gender balance has. And, it, you know, for lots of reasons, you know, the sort of the values that, that having a good balance brings around, you know, all kinds of different elements around decision making and quality decision making and just getting a balance and different viewpoints. And, you know, there are so many different sort of ways of, of, of you know, the, the sort of you know, the changes to the environment and the culture of, of, of boards and the likes that can be different. But, you know, it, it's interesting in that um, I suppose my background originally was in anti-doping. And in the early days, I remember, you know, in, in the first few years of my role, attending a Council of Europe meeting. And I have to say, I was I, I had never really realized that there was such an issue with gender diversity until I walked into one of these rooms with about 50 men in suits and two other women. There was a woman from Australia and a woman from the UK and every other person in the room was a middle-aged man in a suit. And I remember just, I just couldn't believe it. I had no concept that there was so much inequality. You know, I'd had great opportunities throughout my career to date. I had a fantastic mentor. Yes, he was male, but he was very supportive. Mm. I never had this idea ever that there was a difference between male and female when it came to you know leadership and opportunities it, I was just I suppose I, I was lucky that I had opportunities and I took the opportunities and I you know I I, I pushed hard I, I did my best and I achieved what I achieved but I, I believe I achieved them on my merit and you know so it was the first time I really saw that impact and then 
you know, over the years then, you know, as it became more important to get the balance right, I was always fearful of being a token woman. And I have to say, it's something I, I, I really can't stand. And, mm. I, and I kind of rebel against being a token woman. And, and even in sport, you know, at the end of my kind of career, I started to do more kind of fun things like adventure races and things like that. And it was great in that they, they were very strong about ensuring that you know the rules insisted that you had to have a female on the team and I was always kind of popular because I was a good navigator as well as you know being a strong athlete um but I couldn't stand being the one woman on a team and I always always set up women only teams because I just didn't want to be the token and I remember once going with a, a group of very strong men into a team in the UK to a race in the UK and I knew I was going to be the weak link, weak link. And it just really bothered me. And then one of the guys came down with food poisoning. So I wasn't the weak link anymore. So suddenly I was helping <laughs> him along and I felt a bit better. But, you know, it's just, yeah, I had no idea that it was such an issue yeah. until later on in my career. And now I see it and now I can see the importance of having that that balance. And, you know, we see it. We've started to gather information and record. And I suppose in those days we didn't necessarily even record the numbers and, you know, what level of of gender balance there is across governing bodies and we have targets and we're aiming to reach those targets and at the moment on average it looks okay 29 percent of board members are women but we still have you know a chunk of governing bodies that have zero women so it's the ones with more than 30 percent who are bringing up the average so what we need to get is to a point where everybody has that that good balance um, and not just a few with lots of women and a few with none. So they're, they're, those those positions are very important. They, they influence decision making. They influence the future development of the sport. They they help the kind of, I suppose, the, the, the traditional vision and the traditional image of what sport should be. And when we're talking about trying to adapt sports to be more friendly to teenagers, you have to be open to that, you know, and yeah, look, sometimes and, and you know, that's not it's not to say that men aren't very important advocates for women's sport because they are. And we have some really good role models there. And, you know, being in Sport Ireland, John Tracy has always been a very, very strong advocate for women uh, in sport and has supported and recognized and acknowledged the importance of getting those kind of balances right. But not every male is in that position. And when there's an imbalance and there's too many male and there's one female and they're just there to defend women's rights and the men are sitting around the table kind of saying oh you know here's another you know token woman now pushing for the women as opposed to it being a cultural shift which Mm. is what we really need to be aiming for where as an organization there's there's a a full balance and it's not just gender diversity from our point of view it's it's diversity across the board we need to see diverse boards and leadership diversity across the board but look there's some really good positive you know signs you know we have a a chef de mission for the olympic games is a woman the the chef de mission for the next for the winter olympics will be a woman we have numerous presidents and chairs of of governing body who governing bodies are women we have you know sarah Keane there leading out the olympic federation of ireland so we have some really good role models in leadership roles now and you know the work that's being done through the governing bodies but with yeah. support Ireland support um we're seeing some really good opportunities also you know in that um i suppose in a collaborative kind of course that was developed by swim ireland and, and a number of other ngbs we had um women from 26 governing bodies take part in a leadership program we had over over 100 women take part in a leadership program so you know i hope that ultimately they will you know, move into roles and and leadership roles don't always have to be at the very top of an organization. You know, leadership is at a coach level or within a club or throughout people's kind of experiences and throughout the sector, not just as the president or the chair of of the the national governing body. There's 
a lot of opportunities. And the more we build up at the grassroots level, the more success we'll have eventually in having a much more evenly balanced higher level of the sports. Absolutely. And it's about like what you touched on there as well, just about it uh, not just being a gender issue. This was what, you know, Lynn Cantwell was talking about last week as well. It's to do with, you know, inclusion of diversity, people with disabilities, people of colour, like all all about getting the voice heard I think across the board which is which is so important so I, I suppose Una I want to talk to you a little bit about anti-doping and only because um, you, you mentioned it there as part of your career and you know obviously you've been at the forefront of anti-doping um, with Sport Ireland in terms of how Ireland stacks up internationally, you know, like we do, we do all right. Like we do grand when it comes to anti-doping. Like I think that we've we've excelled in that area. And for you personally, within your career, um, I mean, how how did you get into that in the first place? Because I feel like anti-doping. I mean, it's the thing that Netflix makes the documentaries about. You know, like it's the thing that people honestly want to want to know about because it is such a controversial aspect of sport. It obviously, of course, you you know, brings down the credibility massively when there's, you know, a big scandal like, you know, in cycling, for example. But I mean, it is just such a fascinating aspect of it. And it's and it's an area of sport that you've dedicated a massive portion of your career to. Yeah, look, the story of how I got into it, I suppose, is kind of a little bit obscure. I, I never set out in life to be interested in anti-doping. I didn't really, I wasn't really conscious of it. When I was a, a, a student in Liverpool, um, and when you're when you're a student in sports science, every student has to do a project, and you have PhD students doing projects, and everybody's doing projects. And, you know, we all volunteer for each other's projects because we all need people to, to be the guinea pigs. And um, there was a study going on at the time when I was um, in Liverpool, um, it was at the time when there was a big case in the UK, um, an athlete by the name of Diane Modal, who had a sample that she she argued that her sample had been damaged by being left in the heat um, and that therefore that that was the, the reason why she had tested positive. So some of the science, some of the scientists in our chemistry department were looking at the effect of heat on a urine sample and how it could be degraded. And um, so we provided a sample in all our innocence as athletes. We, we went for a run or we, whatever it was that we were into and we provided a sample afterwards. And they then either they put them in the fridge, they put them on the worktop or they put them in an incubator. Mine went in an incubator and actually the degradation of the sample would have led to me having a positive test. And I was absolutely flummoxed. I couldn't believe that an athlete could be caught out like that. So. From then on, I suppose I had a vague interest. And of course, you know, as a sports scientist, we were learning about the history of, of doping and what was happening at the time. And, you know, it was early days in sort of really recognizing the scale of the problem really at the time. And when I came back to Ireland and I, I started working for Sport Ireland, I had no idea that that's what I was applying for. I wasn't, I didn't apply for that. I applied for a job as a development officer. And the roles that were being offered were, you know, in participation in high performance sport. And, you know, as a sports scientist, I had my eye on the high performance area. Um, and then I suppose a, a number of us were appointed and the anti-doping thing came, became more and more of an issue. It was shortly after Michelle de Bruyne's case. And there were it was also around about the time that the big um, Festine affair, when, when the, the Tour de France came to Ireland and they they caught um they 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 opened the boot of a car and at the customs on the way into the, into Ireland as they were leaving France and found a load of doping substances. So there was a lot happening. So it became very quickly evident that we were going to have to tackle the issue. And I was the only one who had a scientific background. So I got um put in charge of the anti-doping program. And you know, it it was interesting and I was I still remembered my bit of 
experience um, as a student, as you know, as a guinea pig for a, for a chemistry student. Um, but so I was interested in it, and I was also very, very, I suppose, vested in ensuring that if we were going to have an anti-doping program, that under no circumstances would I ever let something like that happen to one of our athletes. Yeah. So it meant that I. I started from day one i felt that standards and high standards were so so important in everything we did and um i suppose that just led on over the years it, it was you know high standards were very important to us we were one of only about half a dozen countries that had an iso quality st system and you know I, I i constantly sort of strived for that sort of high 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 performance when it comes to our job so an athlete spends their dedicates their lives to to their performances and if we let them down by having a poor anti-doping system yeah. you know we're letting the athletes down and we're also letting down the country our, our, you know our tax money goes into investing in high performance sport but we want to make sure that we have kind of like an insurance policy behind that investment that we make sure that athletes are actually you know they are what they say they are and that they're they're competing clean and that they represent us fairly and honestly and while Sport Ireland, you know, obviously has a mission and a goal to achieve high, high performance in sport and get medals, we will never compromise on integrity in, in the achievement of those medals. So I think that was reflected throughout my career in anti-doping and it was would have been recognised, you know, I, I was offered the opportunity at the first stage to do a few independent observer missions on behalf of WADA and then I chaired a few over the years, you know, as they kind of could see our commitment to this and you know, we've been on we've rep been represented on multiple WADA bodies and organizations over the years and yeah look it's it's yeah it's just something we do we we we, we are we believe very firmly in what we do we, we really believe the importance of it and integrity of sport is it's just so fundamental to everything we do i mean it, it feels like a complete waste of time and energy encouraging and supporting and promoting athletes to develop their performance if we're then going to throw them out into a field full of doped up athletes so not only do we want to fight doping in Ireland, which I don't think it's a big fight for us. I don't think Ireland has a culture of doping and it's a small country, so it's hard for an athlete to dope and to not go you know, to go unnoticed. And I think if if an athlete is found guilty, then the, the world, the whole country will know about it. There's no hiding in Ireland. You could be in another country and, you know, looking at the way the whole situation deteriorated in Russia, yeah. it's very clear that the culture there, they didn't have an issue with doping if, if, you, if you doped. God, weren't you stupid that you got caught? But really, at the end of the day, they just want the medals. That's all they want—the glory. And and that's not our culture in Ireland. So it's been a it's been a nice place to do what I do and you know, to get the support and recognition for what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, that became like I remember just reading about what was going on in Russia. That became what the sport was, you know, which completely negates the purpose of having clean athletes and actually participating in sport, you know, because it just, yeah. it was a different playing field. It became a different thing. And it almost became like, well, you can't judge any athlete if they're all doping because that's what the sport is. So it was, it just became a weird mentality. Um, but yeah, such a, such a fascinating area of your, of your career as well. And, you know, it's great to see Ireland maintain that and, you know, maintain that ethical background when it comes to sport and the importance of sport as well. Um, just slightly moving on into the, the research that we kind of touched on earlier, um, and that is just about, you know, what we're here to talk about as well. And I suppose this is where I want to kind of end the conversation with you. So, um, and that's the Sport Ireland research on getting teenage girls active. So uh, I, I suppose we touched on it earlier with the pillars of success, you know, and the kind of anchors that you were talking about. Um, what would you say would be the, the most powerful elements that you see? And I suppose looking to the future, the impacts that they're going 
going to have because this is what we're talking about here. This is what we're trying to do when it comes to getting younger and teenage girls active in sport. It's about that sustained element of participation and it's about what we see as being the successful elements to, to keep teenage girls engaged with sport so that then they become, you know, adult women who are participating in sport and who are interested in, you know, uh, moving into those leadership roles in the future. So what are the most important and crucial elements for you when it comes to getting girls active in sport? Well, you know, you did, you touched on it. And I suppose that was the the key goal of the report was to provide people with tools, not just to learn about the girls, because like, it's really important that you learn about them and try and get an insight. As I've joked, I mean, anyone who feels they can get inside a teenage girl's head is doing well. Um, (laughs) I have one myself. Um, But, you know, not only to try and get an insight into how they think and and what goes through their minds, it was to try and provide, you know, resources and tools for for our whole sector to provide opportunities for girls that will keep them there and will attract them. And you're absolutely right. Those girls that that can transition through this phase of their lives and continue to be active have a far, far higher possibility of then remaining active as they get older. And we also know that that children who have sporty parents are much more unlikely to get involved in sport and physical activity themselves. So it's a kind of a continuous cycle, really, that it, it, it goes round and round. So it's very important for us to get this right at this age when, when it's one of the first really, really key points in a person's life when they're likely to drop out of sport. Um, so by providing the, the, the tools for, for the sector to, to provide opportunities, I, I think that's, that's the most important thing for us. And the eight principles, which are no judgment, to invoke excitement, to... Um, you know, to, to um, provide them with rewards, to, to, to give them opportunities to show them, to demonstrate with them, to open their eyes to what's available for them out there. And that's one of the ones I'm really interested in because I suppose I am not and I haven't been particularly involved in in the kind of traditional team sports that, as I mentioned, are, are you know, more commonly offered in school environments. We have to make sure that girls understand that, you know, if you're not good in a, in a team sport or you don't enjoy that environment or you're not particularly good, your hand-eye coordination isn't great or your foot-to-ball coordination isn't great, which mine wasn't, that there is a million other things that you could be doing. You could be doing archery, you could be doing rock climbing. And, and girls like the idea of adventure, and I think that's something that Sport Ireland is really keen to develop because we've, we've just recently established um, a, a whole... So I won't say a brand, but a unit within Sport Ireland of Sport Ireland Outdoors. And, and our goal in that is to open up the, these opportunities and to encourage and support the smaller governing bodies who are involved in those activities to um, to recognise that there is, there is a wish and a desire for girls to be involved. But, you know, there's a long way to go. There's very small numbers of girls involved in these sports. So they don't necessarily, I suppose, currently have the capacity or, or even the, 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 the knowledge to know how to develop their sports to become more attractive to girls. Um, girls just have to love what they do or they won't do it. You know, they're, they're, they can be stubborn. And I don't suppose we use the word stubborn in our research. But I mean, you know, if, if they're not enjoying something, they won't do it. You know, it's, it's they, they stick with school because they have to and they do their exams because they have to. But you don't want them to, to, to see sport as something they have to do. You want it to be something they want to do. And um, so if we tackle those barriers, as we said earlier, about, you know, the image of what sporty is and we give them fun and safe places and we and we don't try and fight with the digital thing. You know, we have to accept that girls will will be on their phones. So let's make sure that they take photographs of fun things 
and that they share those fun things with their friends and that they they show their friends, you know, look, look at the great fun I'm having here. Uh, yes, I'm head to toe in mud, but I'm still having a great time. And, you know, the, the, the whole thing about the the, um, the achievements, you know, look at the money I've raised for charity by doing this crazy thing I've just done or, you know, see what I'm able to do. You know, so yeah. those kind of moments of pride that we can give them, we can do that, you know, very Absolutely. easily. They can get those moments of pride from from all kinds of anything, really. Yeah. And don't give up if you're absolutely terrible at long jump. That's my message to to young girls. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there are other things that you can do if you can't jump. Well, it doesn't know, mean. Well, I, uh, my experience of team sports, apart from the basketball one of traveling for two hours to matches and then not getting to play was also camogie. And I was never a big fan and I had a tendency to kind of complain a bit and I swung the, the, the come on around a bit and I broke someone's nose and that was the end of my camogie career. So, you know, this adventure sports can be can be a lot safer. There's a lot <laughs> out there. Actually, funnily, you mentioned camogie. When I started playing camogie when I was younger, they put me into a younger age group because I was so short that they just presumed I was really young. So I was literally playing camogie with a bunch of toddlers and my like eight year old friends were over here. I was like, excuse me get me out of this age group now but like that you know I never wanted to play camogie again after that so the experience Mm. is so important and it is it's about kind of switching that mentality to let to let young girls know that there's so many different options before I let you go Una I have to ask you about mountain running because I feel like when I'm going on hikes there's always somebody who runs past me up the mountain and I'm just like what like how do you do that so it's definitely niche and I suppose for anybody who's listening or watching who wants to get involved in it, can you tell me a little bit about what exactly that is and also like what the training behind it is? Because it's just something that I would, I can never see myself being able to access. But the people that I see running on mountains always seem to be having the absolute best crack. So tell me a little bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, you've, you've, you've touched on, you know, a special place in my heart, you know, is to be up in the mountains. I just love being up in the mountains. And um, as I did say earlier, you know, I suppose I was raised near the Dublin mountains. So every time I went out, my front door was either up or down, start with the hill or finish with the hill. So I always had that behind me. But um, I just absolutely adore being in the mountains. And I like the fact that with the running, you can go a bit further during that time, you know, so you get that experience and there's the exhilaration you know i mean the, the running downhill part is is basically we always used to describe it as a controlled fall because yeah. you have to keep your legs moving fast enough that if you're falling the other foot goes out in front of you and stops you from falling and then you just keep that momentum going so there's an exhilaration of running in the mountains that you just can't beat and i suppose because i liked the navigation part as well it, it made it you know i just i loved going for really long runs and i loved the idea of navigating i did a lot of these mountain marathons where you have to navigate across the mountains and uh I, yeah, it's oh hard my to God. describe your really, calves, I suppose, but it is something though. for everyone. Like your calves, yeah, no, I can't no, imagine the pain. My calves suffer now. So yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do mountain running anymore because guess what? My calves are shot. But, um, you know, I did it for many years and I loved it. But even when I was still doing it, and I, when my kids were small, I had them out. And I, I still remember a photograph coming back from a run where we did we did a race and the kids were allowed to participate. And I had one and he was, I was holding in my hands. I'd say he was, he was four or five probably and he ran up Sugarloaf. But they all just conked out within five minutes of getting in the car. All I have three, and they all conked out, and they were all good. And my my eldest took it up for a while and represented Ireland at it and stuff like that. So you know, it's it's it is just a great thing. But you also have the kind of older people who sometimes they get a head start. Um, but it, it's it 
despite what it sounds like, it is actually something for everyone. You know, you just do it at your own pace and there's people who walk faster than run yeah. and, you know, they're still as competitive. So it is, it's, it's a great sport. Absolutely. I absolutely love it. And I, I wish my calves weren't so bad yeah. that I could do more of it now. But it's great to hear that there is that option as well. I didn't even know that there was that, you know, that program, the, the outdoor section as well. So, I mean, for anybody who wants to know more about it, we'll put all the details in the description box below for anybody who wants to go and, and maybe get involved in it. And don't be put off by, you know, what I've, what I've described there. I'm only ever jealous of people that I see running up a mountain um, and likewise running down the mountain as well. But um, Dr. Una May, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. And uh, like I said, it would be great for anybody who's listening or watching to go and get more information about all the incredible programs that Sport Ireland have on offer at the moment. So Una, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking part. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. This week's episode of Girls With Goals is brought to you by Sport Ireland. For the next few weeks, we're celebrating some of Ireland's most influential women in sport and getting the message out there about participation, leadership and visibility. 